In this packed episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, we're going to talk about what shirts do I wear, how to overcome a fear of wild edibles, is Leave No Trace and Bushcraft fundamentally at odds with each other, some more detail on fire by friction, what do I think of wood gas stoves, do I ever use stoves or do I always use a fire, and what about making your own sleeping bag for the Arctic. Welcome, welcome to episode 32 of Ask Paul Kirtley. I'm sat here in the shade. I've got a lovely oak tree here. I've got a beautiful ash tree behind me, um, dappled sunlight. There's clouds streaking across the sky today. So apologies, those of you who are watching the video, if I'm kind of going light and dark, I've tried to pick a spot um, where I'm in the shade a bit. Um, again, it's really quite sunny today, um, like it was on the last episode. I've um, been quite lucky with the weather recently after a really wet June here in the UK. We've had okay weather in July. And uh, yeah, looking forward to answering some more of your questions. And without further ado, I'm just gonna get on with these. Some of them are quick, I think. Some of them are maybe a little longer. First one is a question from Sish. And I always pronounce that wrong. I apologize. Um, and his question is, what do you wear in the summer? What kind of shirts do I always see? Well, this is a question that was asked back in January and I thought I would leave it until an episode where I was actually wearing the shirt in question or one of the shirts. I have about half a dozen of these, about six of these in the wardrobe and I find them very, very useful for being out in the woods in the summer. They're, um, they're light, they're comfortable, they're quite long, they tuck in quite nicely but not too tight, um, not too tightly tucked in, they don't ride up at the back too much. I like them for canoeing, I like them for just general um, being out and about in the woods, they're tough and they're also inexpensive. They're military surplus, they're Swedish M59, so the letter M59 shirts and if you search on those you should find them, search on Google or a search engine of your choice, you will find them there. And I paid about five pounds sterling each for the shirts that I wear. And um, apart from having the odd hole in them due to my carelessness, they're still going strong. The last batch I bought, I bought, as I say, I bought six of them back maybe about four years ago. And they're the ones that I'm still using now. And I use them a lot in the summer and they're very good. They're, even though they're completely cotton, they dry quickly because they're quite light. And the thing I would say about them though is insects like mosquitoes will bite through them. They're not um, woven finely enough to, to stop insects biting you through them, mosquitoes in particular. 
Um, whereas say the Fjall Raven trousers that I'm wearing, I don't get bitten through these. So if you go into places where there's lots of mosquitoes, you might need a bug shirt or you might need to wear something with a denser weave than these, but they're light, they're comfortable, they dry quickly, you can easily wash them in the field. I wear them all the time for when I'm working on courses. I wear them for canoe trips in Canada in the summer. Um, I use them in the UK. Um, whenever I'm not going to be concerned about getting wet um, and even so I can put a merino underneath and that's quite comfortable as well so I don't have cotton next to my skin if it's colder and damper you know um, on a cold even in summer you get a cold wet day like we had on Windermere a few weeks ago and um, when we were running the expedition canoeing skills course you get a few days where you get it's windy and wet and this next to your skin isn't particularly warm merino and then this and then a fleece or this and then a waterproof that's that's good that works as well and if you take the waterproof off or the fleece off this protects the merino merino is not great around camp and in the woods it easily gets pulled you'll damage your expensive icebreaker or wool power or whatever it is that you're wearing underneath if you just wear it as an outer so these are a cheap way of protecting them as well so i really really like them that's what they are swedish m59 shirts sometimes referred to as grandad shirts but be aware that some of the ones if you search just on grandad shirts some of them don't have the collar and i like the ones with the collar all right fear of wild edibles this is from bernard nulty his question is, uh, well, he first thanks me for all of the, the content. You're very welcome, Bernard. And his question is, he says, it's a bit of a weird one, but it concerns wild edibles. I've been spending a while working on plants and tree identification, but whenever I find something that I'm confident is positively identified, I check it again and again, but I still can't bring myself to eat any of it even if it's something simple like dandelion or wild garlic. That's nearly impossible to mistake. I still can't shake the fear that I've misidentified it. Have you any advice on potential remedies to this overcautiousness, or are there pre-edibility tests that you trust personally? I'm keen to get over this as wild edible season is one that I want to further my skills in. Thanks, Bernard. Well, Bernard, um, I don't think you're wrong to be cautious about just nibbling on things that you find around and about in nature, particularly as you're learning. Um, you're right that there are some wild edibles that are really quite difficult to mistake for anything else. And the consequence of, of mistaking them for something else is also quite low. And I think that's worth bearing in mind. Some things, if you misidentify them for, uh, the wrong thing, you might be eating something that's seriously poisonous. Other things, if you misidentify them for the wrong thing, you might just be something that doesn't taste as good or doesn't have the nutritional value. It's not gonna kill you or make you seriously ill. So there's that to, to take into consideration. So what I would encourage you to do is maybe look at trying some things that even if you did get them wrong, it's not the end of the world. That's one thing. And as always, it's been beautifully quiet. <laughs> And now we've got a military jet flying around in the background. It's been quiet on my walk today. I start recording five minutes in and there are jets flying around. And I'm not even in Sussex, <laughs> where I've always got commercial airlines going into Gatwick if, if, when the wind's in a certain direction. 
All right, just interesting to have a look. They look like uh, American military, uh, American A-10s, um, known as Warthogs, Thunderbolts, um, the anti-tank planes. Maybe I shouldn't be advertising that they're flying around here, I don't know, but they are. Um, anyway, we were talking about wild edibles. And yeah, so maybe just make a distinction between things. So, for example, there are some things you really don't want to be eating, and maybe this is part of the answer. It's not just about learning the edibles, but it's maybe first learn the things you really don't want to be eating. So learn to identify you, learn to identify foxglove, learn to identify hemlock, learn to identify hemlock water dropwort. Um, they're relatively common. They do look like some edibles. And this can certainly be mistaken for some of the edibles, and yet they're really quite significantly poisonous. Um, so learn those. Learn things like arum. Learn things like laburnum, even though it's not native to the UK. You do see it planted. Learn the poisonous ones that are seriously poisonous um, that you don't want to be mistaking for anything else. Maybe just have that as a baseline. Don't scare yourself with them, but just learn those. And then when you do positively identify other things, then you're more confident that it's not one of the ones that you know is the seriously poisonous ones. I would avoid the carrot family altogether. Um, whether you're looking at edibles or not, just in terms of, just avoid them to start off with. Look at the easy things like some of the brassicaceae, Anything in the Brassicaceae family, which is the cabbage family, there's nothing in that family which is going to poison you. Um, but there are some things in the ca carrot family which, if you get them wrong, and they do look very similar to the edibles, are seriously poisonous. So we mentioned hemlock, hemlock water dropwort, avoid those. So maybe focus on families that, even if you're not perfect with the identification within that family, the consequences of getting it wrong is not serious. You mentioned um, Dandelions, there isn't really anything you're going to get wrong there. Also, don't just use your sense of sight, use your sense of smell. So for things like wild garlic, there's nothing else that's going to look like that and smell of garlic. Um, whereas lily of the valley looks quite like wild garlic, but it doesn't smell of garlic. Um, so use all of your senses. What's the texture? What's the smell as well as the visual cues? and start on the really distinctive ones, as you say. Um, at the end of the day, though, if you really can't get over a fear of trying things, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's wrong to be cautious, um, if, if you can't get over that on your own, go out with um, a forager or a bushcraft instructor or a survival instructor who has a good knowledge of wild edibles and um, there is now an association of foragers um, and I'm a member of that association of foragers and there is a list of other members on that site. So maybe you can contact a forager in your area and you can go out with them and they can show you some of the basics because having somebody show you is the most concrete way of doing it. There are risks with going out with a field guide and just trying things, as, as you rightly say. Um, so maybe go out with somebody who can show you, you know, we as a species have learned from other people, our parents, our elders, 
that's what we have done over millennia. We are very well geared up to learn in that way. For somebody to show you, for you to try, for you to learn it, to get to know the aspects and the characteristics of that plant. So I would say, learn the really poisonous ones so that you've got that baseline of what to avoid. Avoid families where the edible ones look very similar to the poisonous ones, in particular the carrot family. Focus on ones that are very, very easy to identify, that aren't, like you say, dandelion or some of the brassicaceae or some of the other um, nettles, for example, um, some of the lamiaceae, the mint family, they're hard to mistake for anything else. And even if you do mistake them within the family, you're not gonna poison yourself. Those are the ones that I would focus on. And if you still can't get over that fear, go out with someone who's a professional, professional instructor who has a very good knowledge of what you want to learn and learn from them in person. Hopefully that helps. And I'll put a link to that professional association of foragers in the show notes of the podcast at paulkirtley.co.uk. If I can not fall over my words. Next one is about leave no trace and bushcraft. And this is from Rob Hayden. And his question is, hello, Paul. I always enjoy your work and value your opinions. I'm from the US, but hope to travel to England one day and participate in one of your courses. That would be good, Rob. Maybe I can come and do a workshop in the States one of these years as well. There's a possibility, we'll see. I'd like your opinion on a statement that was posted on an internet forum. <laughs> Hopefully I'm not jumping into a, jumping into a, a pool with sharks here and uh, jumping in at the deep end. But anyway, bushcraft and leave no trace is at cross purposes. Leave no trace is an outdoor philosophy whereby one minimizes his or her impact on the natural world while traveling or camping in the backcountry. On the other hand, bushcraft uses skills such as firelighting and shelter building, where the emphasis is on the use of materials from the natural world to practice and refine those skills. By its very nature, bushcraft alters the natural world in some small or not so small way. To be fair, the original statement about leaving a trace and bushcraft being at cross purposes was posted on a forum discussing the Appalachian Trail, which sees intensive use by millions of hikers every season. In that context, I totally agree that all hikers should practice leaving a trace principles. If not, the Appalachian Trail corridor would quickly become denuded of any vegetation and cluttered with a litter of modern society. But what about areas of less intensive use? Does the gathering of dead wood for a campfire or the building of a shelter from natural materials really matter in the long run? What is the responsible thing to do given these two opposing goals? I would very much like to hear your opinion. Thank you, Rob. Quite a long question, Rob, but worthwhile and worth having a discussion about. I've had discussions of a similar nature with people online. People certainly have come onto my blog and looked at, say, for example, some of the firelighting aspects and said that it's irresponsible. They've said similar things about shelter building. Um, personally, I think it's irresponsible for me not to share those pieces of knowledge with people if they can help save somebody's life. We, you mentioned the Appalachian Trail. We've had a few unfortunate cases in recent years of individuals who have been quite well equipped either through hiking or day hiking or doing a multi-day section of the Appalachian Trail 
and uh, in fact other long distance trails in other parts of North America and unfortunately um, perishing. And at the end of the day, it's the lack of skills and lack of experience in nature, and that's not meant in, a, in an airy fairy way, it's just lack of skills, lack of experience, which unfortunately was um, a, certainly a contributing factor to some of those people. You can have all the kit in the world, but um, if you don't have some basic knowledge of hypothermia, of heat loss to an environment, of signaling, of relocation strategies in terms of your navigation skills, um, in terms of carrying the correct navigation equipment, in terms of understanding what people do when you're missing, in terms of how do they search for you, where do they search, um, having a good strategy in place in terms of leaving word and somebody doing something about um, you not coming back. All of those things need to be in place. You need to have some basic skills. The ability to light a fire, the ability to find water, the ability to navigate by natural means, the ability to um, find food. They're not necessarily something that you're going to use very much at all on a long distance hike, such as on the Appalachian Trail. But if you come unstuck, they're useful backstops. And so I would say they're worth knowing for those reasons, but that wasn't the core of your question. The core of your question was about leave no trace versus bushcraft. Um, and the ethos of leave no trace, um, on the one hand, I think is a very good one because it's about minimizing your impact on an environment that you're visiting. And I think that's a good message and I think that's a good philosophy. And I would say anyone who considers themselves a bushcraft person or a bushcrafter should also look to minimize the impact that they have, whatever they're doing, the impact of that activity on the environment. Because you can have a fire and make a right bloody mess or have a fire and leave very, very little trace to the extent where nobody would notice other than somebody who's got some tracking skills. And so it's about, it's about degrees. Nobody that visits an environment is going to leave no trace whatsoever. Unless they can levitate, they're going to have an impact on an environment. Um, just by walking through it, they will have an environment. By their footfall, by urinating, by defecating, uh, by camping in particular spots, they will have an impact on the environment. So you cannot hike and camp in an area without having an impact on it. It's just a matter of degree. Many bushcraft skills, and you mentioned shelter building and fire lighting, they will have an impact on the environment and they will use natural resources. At the end of the day, I always say bushcraft is about a study of nature and a study of the use of natural resources. But equally, we need to balance that with some consideration um, for nature. We also need to balance it with some consideration for other users and we don't want to be leaving fire scars, we don't want to be stripping birch bark from live trees in any circumstances really um, and you know I see people doing that and that gives bushcraft a bad name. You should be looking to minimise the impact. Um, I don't think people should be building big natural shelters on trails like the Appalachian Trail because it's at odds with what you're trying to achieve. You need to be covering a distance. Um, I've not hiked the Appalachian Trail personally. I've had some very close friends who have and to through hike the Appalachian Trail in one season 
takes you all your time to be walking and moving on most days. You're not going to be building natural shelters. Um, and so that's not even an option. Um, the, the, so I would, I would admit that building shelters, lighting fires, does consume some local materials in an area. And the question then is, do you want to be doing that? Is it so, is it so intensely used that that is going to be of a detriment to the area? Where I am at the moment, I've been coming here for 35 years in this area in the north of England and very very few people come here. If I was to camp here and have a fire and leave very very little trace of my, um, of my presence here, I'm sat on a huge piece of dead oak. If I was to burn, a, if I was to have a campfire here tonight I'd burn a small, very very small amount of it I do it as a small stream. I would maybe do it on the banks of the stream where it's going to get washed away in high water um, on the ground that's safe. Um, I wouldn't be doing it over there underneath some coniferous trees which are over there where I might set fire to the root systems. Consideration for the environment and leaving very, very little trace. I'm going to have very little impact on this area. And some people would say the leave no trace um, zealots, and, and there are some zealots out there, they would say, you can't do that. You should not have that. You should not be doing that. Well, what I'll throw back at those people are, if you are hiking through an area with your plastic gear, your metal stoves, where do those resources come from? Where does the oil come from to make the plastic things that you're using? People talk about having, putting down a sheet to have a mound fire. Where does that plastic come from? Where does it go when you've finished using it at the end of its life, the end of your life? Um, metal stoves, yep, they have less impact on the environment than having a fire, the local environment, but where does the metal come from? What about the big hole in the ground where the, the minerals were dug out? What about the roads to that mine? What about the processing plant and the, um, the pollution from the steel mill or the aluminium mill um, and the plant, you know, e extraction of bauxite, turning of bauxite into aluminium is very energy intensive. Um, aluminium plants are often near hydroelectric schemes because they need that much electricity. What's the impact of flooding an area for a hydro scheme to generate electricity to then and the impact of an aluminium plant and the extraction of bauxite so that you can have your aluminium parts of your stove so that you don't have a fire in the local environment. Every single thing that we consume has an effect somewhere on the planet. And so at the end of the day, I think it's an argument about local impact versus a wider impact. And in your question, you talk about having um, a small or a large impact. I don't think any bushcraft activity has a large impact in terms of what you can do as an individual on a local environment unless you accidentally start a bushfire. Um, and that isn't a bushcraft activity, that's just, that's just carelessness, it's an accident. You could do that with a stove, you could do that with a petrol stove as well. Um, so you need to be careful whenever you've got any sort of flame in an environment that is prone to being ignited, you need to follow the rules and you need to be careful. But that aside, I think it's an argument about local impact versus global impact. The biggest impacts on our environment are not people going camping. The biggest impacts on our environment are people 
driving to the trailhead in cars that burn fuel that are made of steel and aluminium and plastic. Um, even if you use an electric car, where does the, where do the, um, where does the nickel and lithium and all the other ingredients for batteries, where does that come from? Where's the hole in the ground that that comes out of? Where does that go when it's finished? Um, every single thing that you do has an impact. Using um, Gore-Tex or other um, breathable fabrics, they're made of plastic. It's made of oil. Using a metal stove, it comes out the ground. Burning fuels, um, you know, even white gas, Coleman fuel, you're very clean, but it's made it's a petrochemical, it comes out the ground somewhere. And so we're arguing about people having campfires versus using stoves in some instances, yet we're burning fuel in our cars and in our homes when we're not in the wilderness that is based on people deforesting areas of Alberta and extracting oil from tar sands. Um, we're using wood um, in our homes, um, in chipboard for furniture and other aspects of our homes that, that is down, that is being used, um, that has been taken from clear cutting and clear felling. Um, you know, there is a lot that we, there's a massive impact that we have, particularly in the first world, because most people who go on wilderness trips are wealthy enough to have the time where they can go and do those things. We're the biggest consumers in our day-to-day -day life. So, I think it's completely absurd, frankly, that we're arguing about these small differences in a local environment when we're having such big, big impacts in our home lives. And those are the areas where we should really be focusing on. Um, now, I, going back to the original question, should some areas not, not have fires and camping and have very tight restrictions? Absolutely. National parks, provincial parks, areas that are popular, that get a lot of people going to them, they need to be protected, both for the sake of the natural environment and for the sake of the enjoyment of other people who are going there. So yes, um, we do need to strike a balance, but I don't think bushcraft is inherently bad, and I don't think leave no trace is inherently bad. I think the philosophies sometimes um, are at odds for reasons which are ludicrous, um, there are reasons for applying each in different circumstances. And I think even if you're doing something like hiking the Appalachian Trail, you should have a backstop of bushcraft and survival skills, because then if you do get lost, if you do get into trouble, then you've got a fallback set of skills that you can fall back on. Um, and do remember, if you're carrying plastic and metal and things, yes, you'll have less impact on that local environment, but you're having a big impact somewhere else because you're part of that industrial use of nature, um, which has far bigger consequences. Look at the Amazon, look at um, oil tar sands, look at um, oil drilling around the world, look at um, metals mining, look at industrial plants for um, smelting and turning um, materials into metals look at oil refineries that is what you're using when you're relying entirely on kit in the wilderness you're having an effect somewhere else and it may be out of sight it may be out of mind but you're still having an impact on the planet that's my view Question from Martin Holland about fire by friction. We have a lot of questions about fire by friction. And as I said in the last episode, I'm happy to answer them because it's a, in many ways, being able to light fires 
is the most important skill in bushcraft. It's what allows us as a species to range much further than we might otherwise be able to do. We can go into cold and damp areas. We've got clothing. We've got the ability to create and control fire. It allows us to go places where we wouldn't otherwise be able to go. And it's a core skill for us as a species. And fire by friction, um, I think sometimes it's overemphasized because um, there's lots of other aspects of, 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 of bushcraft but it is a core skill and so always happy to answer questions. So Martin asks, I've been practicing fire by friction with a bow drill and been getting some good results. I just need to take greater care with wood selection I think. My question is which other fire by friction would you recommend for use in the UK? Any tips would be appreciated. Thanks for your time and regards for your great work. Regards, Martin. Well Martin, um, Bow drill is the most widely applicable method of friction fire lighting. You've got the most mechanical advantage. You separate the rotational aspect from the downward pressure aspect. As long as you've got good cordage and um, a basic skill set, you can create fire. Material selection is important. Material selection is important in bushcraft in general, and it's an area that's under-emphasized, and I've mentioned that before. You should learn to be able, you should be able to learn over time to recognize um, particular species of trees and plants and animals and be able to uh, recognize the most appropriate resources for, for what you're trying to <coughs> excuse me for what you're trying to do in a particular environment and uh, material selection for bow drill is important both in terms of the selection of the species selection of the condition of the wood that you're choosing to use as well not too hard not too soft all of those things is important and again um, those of you who have not seen my troubleshooting uh, article on bow drill, I'll link to it in the show notes and you can, you can have a read through that because that's been very helpful for quite a few people. I've got good feedback on that. Um, I wrote it a good few years ago. It's still as relevant now as it was when I wrote it and a lot of people have been able to go from not being able to light fire by friction at all or inconsistent application um, through to consistent application and it's been very, very helpful to people. So check that out. Um, so I would certainly be all over learning as many different species uh, for application to bow drill wherever you are, um, particularly in the northern temperate and the boreal, even in some tropical areas because they're damp, um, it's very, very useful to know how to do that. Um, the next one I would be learning after bow drill would be hand drill and I would start by making a hand drill from elder, um, Sambucus nigra, here in, in Northern Europe. And I would be looking to have a hearth board of, if you can find it, some clematis works very well, but it needs to be seasoned right. Ivy maybe, but it can be too hard sometimes. Or if you've got access to some introduced species, red cedar or uh, white cedar, eastern white cedar or western red cedar, they can form good hearth boards. Some willows, although willows are a little bit more tricky um, in some instances, white willow, as long as it's not too hard, have a go with that as a hearth board. Um, but that's where I would be starting. Hand drill next. Hand drill is a lovely, elegant method of lighting fire, but it's not as immediately available to you in terms of creating a fire. Going into, a, going into the woods with a piece of string and a knife, you can make fire by friction with bow drill. Fire by friction with hand drill, yes, you can find stems of some plants, burdock, maybe, even ragwort in some cases. Occasionally you can get the stem of uh, 
reed mace, greater reed mace, um, Tifa latifolia, you can get in the right condition, although they're, they're often too far gone and disintegrate. You can sometimes find materials for hand drill which you can apply straight away, but usually the best results are from making a drill and then carrying that with you. And um, if you look at indigenous peoples who still use hand drill, um, that's exactly what they do. They will go to the right species to make the best hand drill they can make in that environment and they'll carry that with them as part of their outdoor kit. In the same way that we might carry a lighter or a box of matches or a fire steel. Um, it's not some, something that they're going to go and make straight away when they need a fire. They will often just select a piece of wood for the hearthboard as and when they need it, but the drill is something that is made, it's fashioned, it's dried, it's straightened, it's, it's a piece of equipment that's then carried with them. But that, for me, would be the next thing to, to learn once you've got to a certain stage with the bow drill. Next question is on wood gas stoves. This is from Johannes and his question is, um, what's your opinion on wood gas stoves, i.e. a firebox, bush box, etc. Are they a useful part of kit or a more fanciful toy? Have you used them? And if yes, what are your experiences with them? Regard Johannes. Um, it's a good question. A lot of people like the little wood stoves. The one I've used most is probably the honey stove, but I have used other ones. I'm not a huge fan of any of them, frankly, because the size of fire that you get with them is quite small. Um, you'd have to feed them continuously with small sticks, um, which doesn't allow you to be doing much else. Whereas if you have a fire, you can feed it in a more, uh, with larger fuel that burns more slowly. You don't have to have a huge, um, flame you don't have to have a huge amount of fire going but you can feed in you know for example here you could take some of the smaller ends of this dead piece of oak that I'm sitting on and have three of those fed in like a star fire and once you had your fire established you could feed those in put a kettle over it and that would tick over and I could go and do something else while the water boiled and while a stew slow cooked or something whereas with the little stoves the size of fuel that you can get into them, they're all right for boiling and yes they can sometimes get you around rules about not having fires on the ground in some campsites but frankly I find them more hassle than they're worth. That's a personal opinion, that's not a recommendation or uh, an edict that you shouldn't use them if you like using them. Personally um, I don't think they're worth the weight for carrying them under, under most circumstances frankly. That, that's my view. Related question. I do have a plan with some of these shows. Related question from Russell. Russell Joyce via Twitter. What are the pluses and minuses of small wood burning stove versus open fire? I've talked about that already. Do stove circumvent no fire rules regs in the UK? second part of the question on the second tweet, do you ever use a small stove or is it always a pot billy can on a hanger over an open fire? Um, so I've already talked about my thoughts on wood stove, wood gas stoves and small stoves. I, I'm not a huge fan of them. Um, 
and they do sometimes with some camping areas get you around the rules of not having a fire on the ground particularly if you put some protective material underneath them and there's like a little grill inside to stop the fire being in contact with the ground that can be useful um, I would say they still class as an open fire certainly as you travel you go into national parks if the rules are no fires I, I would imagine most park rangers would consider that still an open fire even if you've got it inside um, a bit of Meccano which effectively is what a lot of these stoves are if they disassemble um, I, I, I don't think that necessarily gets you around the rules in terms of rules on other people's land um, you have to have landowners permission to have a fire that's what the law says um, it doesn't say what you can have the fire in um, and again I think that might be something that would end up being debated in court um, I, I think the bigger question is if you're camping on somebody's land again you need landowners permission whether you have a fire or not whether you've got a, um, a little wood stove whether you've got a gas stove whether you're having a fire um, at the end of the day you need permission to be camping there whatever you're doing to generate heat to cook your dinner um, so there's two issues there um, so it's slightly academic if, even if it did somehow circumvent the rules about having fires you still need landowners permission to be camping there in the first place in most places even on open access land a lot of people get confused about open access land open access land means you can walk on the land it doesn't mean you can camp there other part of the question do I always use an open fire and pot hanger no I'll often particularly on hiking trips I'll use a stove um, my favorite is generally uh, the MSR Whisperlite um, I've had one of those for 25 years first used it um, after I hiked the West Highland Way I was using a little gas stove which I got frustrated with because my dinner was cooking more slowly than there were five of us we were using two stoves and um, my friend Wayne who was from the States he was cooking on an MSR Whisperlite his dinner was always cooked before mine was and I was cooking on a little camping gas stove and particularly as the pressure diminished in my canister it took longer and longer and longer for me to boil water to cook my dinner so after that hike when I got back to Edinburgh which is where I was living at the time I went down to Rose Street I went to one of the camping shops on Rose Street and bought myself a MSR Whisperlite International um, which has got the different um, different jets settings so you can use more fuels and um, it's still in use now I've had to service it a little bit but not very much it's still in use I've still got the original fuel bottle still got the original stove and I've used that in the UK and I've used it overseas and it's very reliable as long as you don't let it get too sooty um, most recently I've used it on hikes such as the Scottish 4000s that we did and I use it um, whenever I think a stove is going to be more efficient um, than a fire remember when you've got a fire you've got the collection of firewood you've got to prepare a site you have your fire and then you have to clean up afterwards and if you're trying to move on every day that isn't always the most efficient thing to be doing a stove can be more efficient of course you've got to carry the fuel versus collecting fuel locally but it, it depends where you are particularly if you're in an area where there isn't a lot of wood and you might have to carry some fuel anyway stove often comes into its own and you don't you know petrochemical 
um, fuels are so calorific, you don't necessarily need to carry a lot. You know, a small fuel bottle is going to keep you going for days and days and days and days and days, and it's only going to weigh maybe 600 grams. Um, you know, more just a bit more than a pound. So that is often suitable when you're moving day after day. The other times we use stoves are on canoe trips in Canada um, and we carry them for emergencies. We're typically using a fire every day in camp. Um, as long as there isn't a fire ban, which there can be sometimes in some parts of Canada, in, the, in provincial parks, they'll say it's too dry to have open fires, you can't have a fire. And you have to, um, you have to submit to that, you have to respect that, because not only are you at risk of damaging the environment, the reason they say that is because there is a significant risk of forest fire. Um, you don't want to damage the environment, you don't want to end up in the middle of a bushfire, and equally, just from if you're purely selfish about things, um, equally you'll be prosecuted. Um, they, they have a very good system for spotting fires, for sending in ground crews to, to catch people, and if a fire site is the cause of a forest fire, they'll send forensics peoples in, people in to, to look at that. And you know, it might be somewhere in between where it says don't you can have a fire but don't burn paper because or rubbish, because that will send burning bits of paper into the into the wider environment which will land and set fire you have to follow the rules so a stove can be uh, a viable alternative in those situations where you can't have a fire but even so even where we do have a fire on those sorts of trips um, we carry a stove with us because if you get to the a situation where say you're at lunchtime and it's been pouring with rain all morning and you get to the lunch stop and people are cold and wet and we need to get a hot drink or some hot food into someone, you can light a stove and do that efficiently without taking too much time out of the day that getting a fire, getting a tarp up, getting a fire going underneath it, getting people warm, getting cooking on that, that just takes longer. Um, so we tend to have fires in the evenings in camp, but if we need a very, very quick boil, um, whether it's as soon as we get to camp or during the day we've got a stove and some fuel as a result uh, of carrying it as an almost an emergency piece of kit um, in the last two blood vein trips that we that we did we used a stove one day um, we had horrendous weather really heavy rain um, and it was quite cold compared to how it had been one guy got a bit cold and wet and as soon as we got to camp yes a couple of people got on with getting the fire going some people got on with getting the tarp up but we also got the stove on to boil some water so we could get a hot chocolate into him as soon as we could. And that was, good, that was ready before the fire was lit. That's just, the, that's just the reality of, particularly in wet conditions, yes, you can get a fire going relatively quickly if you've got the skills, but you still need to find dead standing. You still need to split it. You still need to ignite the fire, and then you still need to get that over. Whereas stove out, prime it, light it, water on, it's going it's quicker and um, that's just the that's just the situation but then we had a fire under a tarp to get a warm recirculation of, eye, of, of air going and then we cooked our dinner on that boiled most of our water on that so that's ten, that tends to be where I use them a lot of the time in wilderness areas closer to home if I'm backpacking um, and particularly in areas where I either can't have a fire because of lack of resources 
or I'm not allowed to have a fire, I'll use a stove. And my favorite is the MSR Whisper Light um, because it's light, I can use a range of fuels with it and it's lasted, you know, it's served me well for 25 years. I've used others like the XGK, I've used Optima stoves, I've used Primer stoves, I've used gas stoves, but the one I keep coming back to is the, uh, is the most versatile for me is the Whisper Light. And I have no link with MSR other than having used them for a long time. Just in case, there's a, there's a lot of people on YouTube giving advice about kit because they're being sponsored. None of the kit that I use um, that I talk about is anything other than stuff that I've bought myself. And that's it, that's important. Right, last question. This is a long question. I remember I read this last night. This is from Mikko Heiska, who I'm assuming he's in Finland, I believe. And his question is about DIY sleeping bags. It's quite a long question and I might answer some of these bits as we go. Um, I'd like to know if you have any information about if you can make sleeping bags yourself. I'm starting to get interested about winter camping in sub-zero conditions, even down to perhaps minus 30 degrees Celsius and perhaps living in a heated tent during the day, for which you have a great guide on your blog. Thank you very much. However, I find that winter sleeping bags for extreme cold, uh, from example, Fjall Raven, can be very expensive. Um, there are other ones out there, I'm sure they're very good as well, um, but win either way, winter sleeping bags are not cheap. Some army surplus gear can be at a very nice price though. Given that sleeping bags are essentially insulating material, fit inside some outer fabric, I was wondering if you could do the same yourself using some cheap outer fabric from a store, finding some natural insulating material from nature, or buying synthetic, and putting it all together with some simple sewing for a fraction of the price. Um, yes, you can, um, I'm sure. Um, I would imagine that many of the established sleeping bag brands out there started as little cottage industries. Certainly a lot of outdoor clothing brands started as little cottage industries where it was somebody in their garage with a sewing machine making something that they wanted to use for whatever trips they were making that didn't exist there already in the market and there's nothing to stop you getting a sewing machine setting up in your shed or your spare room or your or your garage and making things you can buy materials online now it's easier than ever to find manufacturers or distributors of materials and you could you could make your own um, there are even books that you can buy um, or designs available online for making sleeping bags you can do that and you can buy Certainly you can buy synthetic insulative material online or from relevant suppliers over the phone if you want to as well. It's just a case of then spending the time and learning the skills to, to make what you want. Um, I would suggest that maybe sewing zips in is the most complicated part of maybe making a sleeping bag like that. Um, you need to think about baffles, you need to think about um, the construction in terms of how, whether it's box wall or all of those sorts of things. There's a little bit more to it than maybe just creating a bag full of warm stuff, but by all means, it's something that you could make yourself. And indeed, I would imagine that some small sleeping bag suppliers 
most of the manufacture is still done by hand, or at least a lot of it's finished by hand with people on sewing machines finishing um, the product. So there's nothing to stop you doing that yourself if you want to. Personally, it's not something I've done myself. Um, I would rather um, spend my time earning my money in other ways and buy the equipment made um, by other people because overall that's better use of my time. Um, I, I have personally I have no desire to, to make sleeping bags, but I have friends who make equipment, um, whether it be canvas bags or smocks or stuff sacks or yeah, you can buy the materials and a sewing machine and make them yourself. In terms of natural materials for stuffing into sleeping bags, I mean the, the natural material that's used most is, is goose down. Um, in terms, but I, I'm assuming you mean veg, vegetable matter or, or, or plant materials or tree materials. Kapok is a material that I know was used for uh, jackets, um, particularly the Russians used to use Kapok stuffed jackets. You could look into that for um, stuffing into a sleeping bag. I don't know how heavy it would be. I don't know how well it would fare if it got damp, how much it would clump. I have no experience of that. But there are fibrous plant materials that you could use. Bed straws, for example, are called bed straws because they were used for stuffing mattresses. Um, the plants, the bed straws. Um, there are fibrous uh, plant materials that you could use, I suspect, although they would be probably quite heavy and susceptible to moisture and maybe infestation with um, insects and, and other things, perhaps. Um, downy seed heads, um, as I say, I've talked about kapok, but also maybe even something like the, um, the fluff from the top of uh, Tifa latifolia, greater reed mace, um, I know that was used for stuffing mittens um, in cold areas. Um, I, whether, whether that would extend to being used for a sleeping bag, you could experiment with that, um, but I don't know. But the, the, you know, those are the things that I would be looking at. Fluffy downy seed heads and fibrous plant materials or duck down are the natural materials that I would be thinking of. Um, And in the next part of your question, do you know if such would be possible for extreme winter conditions with temperatures down to th minus 30 degrees Celsius? I think you just have to experiment, frankly. Um, you know, you have to work, you'd have to work out how much material and what design would work best for that, for that environment. Um, do you know of any, any natural insulating materials you can find in the woods or nature? I think we've talked about that already. Are there any synthetic materials you know of people uh, having been used to make their own sleeping bags. Yes, you can buy uh, Prima Loft and other synthetic materials um, if you want to. Um, it would probably be perhaps a lot heavier than commercial sleeping bags. Not if you made it to the same specification, it wouldn't be, it would be the same. Um, but maybe it wouldn't get so heavy that it would be unbearably heavy to sleep under. Again, I think you'd have to experiment. Natural materials, I'm not so sure, um, but certainly you could make your own synthetic sleeping bag to a similar specification to a manufacturer with enough sewing skill and access to the right materials. Um, last part of the question is also, is it a good idea to use two sleeping bags inside one another? Um, can you lower the temperature of your sleeping system that way? 
so yes you can use two sleeping bags inside one another in cold conditions but there are a couple of issues with that um, what keeps you warm in any sleeping system is not the material it's the air trapped in the materials so the insulative material, the air that's trapped in that, the air that's trapped in the construction in terms of it being segmented and not having cold spots where there is no air between you and the outside, that's what keeps you warm. Air is a very, very good insulator. That is what will stop the cold getting to you and stop the warmth getting out of your sleeping bag. Now, if you compress the sleeping bag so that there's less air in it, it's not going to be as insulative. And one of the issues with putting two inside one another is maybe at least the one on the inside doesn't loft as well as it would do if you're using it independently because it's squashed between you and the constriction of the outer bag. Um, equally, if you're pushing an inner bag into the outer bag, basically you're bigger inside the outer bag, then again, you might compress that bag to an extent and make the whole system colder that way. Um, so it's a question of is there enough room for them to be well lofted inside each other with you inside. Different people are different sizes. If you're, you know, I'm quite large, I'm six foot one, you know, 180 something uh, in terms of uh, centimeters. Um, I, I'm quite broad in the shoulders. I'm quite, um, I'm a lot heavier than I used to be many years ago when I used to do a lot of mountain bike racing. I take up more room in a sleeping bag than I used to 20 years ago. Um, and you know, I know with customers coming on trips with us, once you get beyond my height, um, getting a sleeping bag big enough can be an issue. Um, and therefore stuffing two inside each other and you inside maybe isn't the best answer. I don't know how big you are in terms of height or width or, or anything, but that's a consideration. Um, the other consideration as well is that it can just be a real hassle, particularly if you're sleeping inside a bivy bag as well. You know, you might have um, zips in different places, a top zip bag and a side zip bag and a, you know, a, a bivy bag that's got a zip or no zip. And the whole lot, trying to get it all fastened up with, you've got two sets of baffles, you've got two or three sets of zips. It can all be a real pain in the bum to be trying to sleep out in those, particularly if you're outdoors and you really need to hunker down and get everything sealed up. I've slept out at minus 32 in two sleeping bags. So I had a four season, I had a two season down bag with a side zip inside a four season synthetic bag with a top zip inside a bivy bag with a top zip and i will never do it again because it was so frustrating to get into and out of at those temperatures with the zips and the baffles and the toggles i just after that i bought a bag that was the right rating for that environment and just used that on its own that was a much better solution for me um, and much easier to get into and out of. Because remember as well, if you're faffing around with um, trying to get everything fastened, you're more likely to get cold hands, you're more likely um, to suffer cold injuries than if you can get in and out quickly and effectively and efficiently. So that's, that's my view. So I would either buy a bag that's rated for the environment or I would make one that's rated for the environment. If you don't have a lot of money, get a military surplus synthetic bag that is rated for 
the conditions, you know, get a, uh, an Arctic bag, a British military Arctic bag, or a, one of the, you know, Swedish or Norwegian military bags. Um, and I'm sure there are Finnish bags as well. I, I've not had any experience of those, but of a similar rating that would go well on a polk. Um, not, you know, probably too heavy to go on your back, but would be all right on a polk, maybe weighing about three kilograms for a synthetic bag of, of Arctic weight. That's what you're looking at and you don't have to pay a lot of money. That might be the easiest solution. But if you do make your own, I'd be very interested to hear about those. Right, a couple of long answers there, a little bit longer than the last episode, but good questions nonetheless. Hopefully that's added value. Um, please do um, leave some feedback. Let me know on my blog underneath if you've enjoyed this episode. Also, if you are on one of the platforms such as iTunes or Stitcher, where you can leave a rating and a comment, please do if you haven't done already, because it really, really, really helps this get out to a wider audience. So if, that, if you're an audio person, let me know what you think that way. And if you're on YouTube or my blog watching the video, again, let me know in the comments section any thoughts on what I've just discussed. Always great to hear from you. I do try and reply as much as possible, but it's not always easy, particularly at this time of year. I'm out in the woods teaching a lot and my access to YouTube in between uploading these is not always very frequent. So I often have to come back uh, home or to the office with, with the video, quickly get it edited um, with the beginning and the end, upload and then off again and I don't always have time to catch up with the comments straight away, but I do read them all eventually and I do try and reply to as many as I possibly can. So I really appreciate the community around these videos and these podcasts, whether you're commenting on my blog or commenting on YouTube or leaving reviews and comments elsewhere on the, relative, on the relevant platforms. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much for your attention. Keep the questions coming in and I'll see you on the next episode of Ask Paul Kirtley. Take care, cheers.